0: This is what, for at least for me, what nearly 12 years of sermon notes looks like. So, yeah, so that's it's probably too many words, right? <laughs> so that's quite a stack, right? Do you want to hold that, Levi? No, you don't have to. <laughs> you think so? I think it's going to be okay. So that that stack kind of represents, I mean, for me, it represents a lot of wrestling with God. I often feel like uh, Jacob wrestling with God. Um, But it represents uh, instruction, um, exhortation in God's word. We try and be um, a church that that consistently is looking to God's word as our guide, um, knowing that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. But as, you know, I was thinking as I was doing some reflection this week, um, and for me it represents probably a lot of hours and <laughs> a lot of late nights or whatever. But I was thinking th- this whole stack, I mean thousands of pieces of paper, many thousands of words, that whole stack uh, is worthless if we are only hearing and not doing James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the word. And interesting, he says, and, that, and so what? Deceive yourselves. So, so there can be this constant listening to the word, but being in this place of self-deception, that somehow things are good, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm living the Christian life, and I'm, and I'm walking with God, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. And then he simply says what? Do what it says. Do what it says. Jesus spoke of his, of his teaching. He says, you know, the, the, the one who, who li- hears these words and what? Puts them into practice at the end of the, his uh, Sermon on the Mount. That's the one that is, is building his house on a rock. And the storms come and the winds come and that, that, that house stands. But the one who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a man who builds his house on the sand. And then when the winds come and the storms come, the house goes down with a loud crash. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. This chart should feel especially poignant in sections of Scripture like we're going to enter into this morning. When we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, we are reconciled to God, as as Julie prayed this morning so beautifully, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? It's the gospel. It's the good news. God's grace a faith that is a gift. Our salvation is not by works. And it's only through Jesus Christ, the one who has died for our sins and risen again victorious over our death. So through this, this new spiritual birth, we've been talking about the fact that everything should change. Everything in our lives then should, should really transform. There should be this metamorphosis that begins to take place. We are a new creature, a new creation in Christ. And now this life is a journey of, of, of us really coming more and more to a place where we resemble who we are in Christ. It should change how I think, how I view the world, how I relate to God, how I relate to myself, and how I relate to within my outside relationships. My entire life, as we've been looking at the beginning of Romans, my entire life should be worked out with God's mercy always in view. That should be the backdrop of my life, allowing, as we saw last week, for me to see and face myself with a clear mind, with sober judgment, not, not looking at myself too highly and not looking at myself too lowly. I'm a sinner saved by grace, included and gifted in God's family forever. And then it's at this point that we're kind of ready to move on. We're ready to take the next step in how this Holy Spirit-empowered transformation comes into practice outwardly. Because when I begin to relate to God in healthy ways, because of his grace, because of faith, through Jesus Christ, and I can begin to relate to myself in healthy ways, seeing myself clearly, it's then that I can begin to relate to others in healthy ways. As we progress in Romans 12, uh, uh, many scholars, um, biblical scholars attempt to break the rest of this chapter down Basically, between uh, two sets of relationships. One would be relationships that we have within the church, and then would be the the kind of casting the net wider relationships outside the church. But if we're really fair to the text, what's interesting is that as Paul progresses in his thoughts, that the line really isn't perfectly clear. You know, we as Americans with very linear thinking like everything to be like bullet points and and very you know very clear. But but he. Paul starts to kind of inter- intermingle his thoughts as one leads into another. There's not this, this th- there's, he's certainly exhorting the body. He's just talked about spiritual gifts. There's a more clear exhortation about how we should deal with one another. But he starts intermingling. It's like he starts casting his eye, uh, saying how this should manifest itself outwardly. And really, even in that intermingling of thought, I think there's a lesson. Because we, we want to so compartmentalize our lives in the sacred and the secular. Well, I've got church and I've got work, right? I've got youth group and I've got school. They're, they're just like two different worlds. I, I, I've, got, I've got my devotions time with God and then I've got my leisure and pleasure time. But, but God doesn't do that and he doesn't really allow us in his word to do that. Our call, really, is that all our lives would be sacred unto the Lord. That's why Paul says, Offer your bodies, your whole flesh and blood existence, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So, like I said, we're going to be looking at... I originally had kind of bit off verses 9 through 16 for this morning. Um, I've decided... Um, to break that in two, um, I'll be splitting it in two parts. We'll be looking at 9 through 13. And then next week, especially with uh, communion and the one life students sharing, I'll just, we'll just have a, a much shorter reflection on verses four, 14 through 16. So this morning, 9 through 13. But what I want to do is, just for context, we'll pick up again at verse 1, and we'll read right through 16. his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others we have different gifts according to the grace given us if a man's gift is prophecy prophesying let him do it in proportion to his faith if it is serving let him serve if it is teaching let him teach if it is encouraging let him encourage If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. We'll stop there. And again, like I said, we'll break this into two sections. Hopefully I got my numbers right when I said it. We'll primarily primarily be looking at verses 9 through 13 this morning. So in what ways should my relationships, because again, Paul is very clearly transitioning to these outward relationships. In what ways should my relationships be transformed by God's mercy and love, in view of God's mercy? And simply put, I think we could say that it should transform the way I love. And it should cause my love to be, if we could put it so simply, a real love. Chip Ingram on this section uh, says that this inner transformation should cause the real you to meet real needs for the right reasons in the right way. The real you to meet real needs for the right reasons in the right way. Our foundational statement is that love and this is this agape love this this unconditional god love this self-sacrificing love must be sincere and i believe that's this that that simple phrase is the foundation for everything that follows love must be sincere so of course the flip side of this command reveals that we have a tendency toward insincere love. Something that would pose as love. Why do we love others? Very often I love you because you will love me back. That that simple thought, if we really use that as a litmus, litmus test on why we love, do we simply love because others will love us in return? That's often the measure of our love, this far and no further. I'll love you because you love me back. I'll love you as, as long as you make me feel good about myself. As, long as, I start, as soon as I start feeling bad about myself, or I feel hurt or insulted, then I draw the line. I love you because I want something from you. You're a person that I see that I can get ahead with or that can, that can serve me in ways that I need. I love you so that others will think good of me for loving you. <laughs> what a good guy. What, what a good gal. Look, they, they're loving that poor dope, that hard case. Oh, they, they must really, really get it. Or I love you so I feel better about myself. But all of, those, all of those things that we call love really is not love for the other at all, is it? All of those supposed forms of love really are just about loving me. It's just about loving self. Paul says love must be sincere. The word sincere has to do with here with authenticity. It has to be genuine. It, it, it's the opposite of hypocrisy. And again, hypocrisy in its truest form is this idea of play acting. All the world's a stage. And so Paul's like, in your community, it shouldn't be a stage. It shouldn't be play acting. Oh, how how nice can I make myself appear? How kind can I, can I make you think that I am? <laughs> in 1 Corinthians 13, in the middle of his instruction on spiritual gifts, and we need to remember that, again, this is very much the same rhythm. Paul has just encouraged us about spiritual gifts and the use of spiritual gifts, and very much the same rhythm what he does in, in the letter to the Corinthian church. He pauses... You are of great value. You have been gifted. You are included in the family of God. Each one of you is important. But each one of you needs the other. And he pauses and gives this famous explanation, this beautiful picture of what love is and what love isn't. He powerfully reminds us that all our Christian duty is in vain apart from real love. He says in the first eight verses of the 13th chapter of Corinthians, he says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Jesus said that it's by this, by this kind of love for one another that all men, as you cast the net wider, as you look out beyond the Christian community, will know that you're my disciples. They'll know that you're, ones, you're the ones that are the followers of Jesus by the way you love one another. One of the commentaries I have, the Life Application Bible Commentary, says this love, so not Sunday school programs and not not, not even, you know, great worship bands or powerful preaching, but this love is the most accurate indicator of spiritual health in the body of Christ. How does this sincere love, this real love, this genuine love flesh out in real life? Well, Paul begins to list and kind of what feels like this rapid succession. But but we shouldn't see it as a random, unrelated collection of of kind of ethical instruction. But I think we'd do better to see kind of uh, Paul as a master painter here. You ever see one of those... uh, Paintings online where in the beginning you're going, what is it? What is it? And as the brush strokes, you go, oh, 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 oh. Now I see it. And Paul is a master painter. And with each brushstroke, he's making it clearer and clearer and clearer what real love looks like. First, he says that this love hates what is evil and clings to what is good. Love that is genuine is loyal to good. To what God says is good and right and just and fair. So love towards God, love, to- love towards my Christian brother and sister, love towards the, my, my neighbor is so loyal to good that it hates all that would hinder it. Now that's, it's, it should stand as striking, That Paul says love must be sincere. And then right away he brings up this concept of hate. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. But the reality is is that true love should revile anything that stands in its way. And before you you, you make the jump of hating evil in others, because that's what we tend to do. Yeah, I, I, I hate that about that person. I think what we're meant to do is simply see the evil that's in our own hearts that is a stumbling block to loving well. What is keeping me from sincerely loving others? What's getting in the way of me loving so-and-so? Is it bitterness, jealousy, envy, those are the things that I should abhor. Sincere love doesn't dabble around with duplicity, with pretense and envy and selfishness, with competition and arrogance. It hates the things that divide and deceive, the things that neglect and oppress and abuse and betray. And it doesn't simply stay near the good It clings to the good. The word in the Greek is actually used in other places for, if I could say, intimate relations. It's intimately acquainted with the good. One with the good. That which brings wholeness and unity and truth and freedom and dignity. Care and healing and restoration. Second, love that is genuine is faithful to my spiritual family. Be devoted to one another, Paul says. And this devotion is to be expressed in a brotherly love. So these terms, actually, both the word devotion and this, this phileo, this brotherly love, they're, they're both terms that would typically be used for biological family. You know, nothing's thicker than blood, But Paul is teaching that our fidelity to our spiritual family should be no less than it would be for our own flesh and blood. For we are connected by blood, amen? The blood of Jesus. But of course, this is where the rubber really meets the road. Where ideology has to match practice. Because this is where it's hard, Living in community is hard. Like most good intentions, it's easier said and done than done. There's an old rhyme that contrasts kind of the glories of heaven with the realities of earth. It goes like this to dwell above with saints in love that will indeed be glory. To dwell below with saints I know? Well, that's a different story. I'm often happy to love a stranger on a missions trip. Or I'm happy to love a child that I've never met that I send money to and help support in some country somewhere. I'm happy to march against injustice for people who are oppressed somewhere out there. And all those things are good and all those things can be beautiful and right. But if it doesn't translate to loving the people I know, to the loving the people that are right here right now, around me, even in the body of Christ, that we share Christ together, then maybe it's time for, to re-examine my definition of love. Be devoted to one another out of brotherly love. Next, the next uh, brushstroke, if you will, honor one another above yourselves. Love that is genuine is always bringing dignity to others, holding others in highest esteem, honoring them and respecting them, whoever they are. So I'll say it again. Whoever they are. One more time. Whoever they are. Love brings dignity to others. Philippians 2.3 out of the New King James Version says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. To Jesus it didn't matter who he was interacting with. It didn't matter if it was the Samaritan women who had known and been with many men. Or if he was interacting with the pious Pharisee, Nicodemus. It didn't matter if it was the rich young ruler who had position and clout. Or if it was the blind beggar, Bartimaeus. It didn't matter if it was the ostracized tax collector, Zacchaeus. Or his friends, Peter and John. Or Judas, who he knew... Would betray him. Didn't matter if it was the Roman ruler Pilate or a thief being executed on a cross beside him. He showed them all honor, respect, and dignity. People created in God's image. So for us, it shouldn't matter if it's the CEO of a corporation. Or the janitor. It shouldn't matter if it's a straight A student or a juvenile delinquent with many piercings. It shouldn't matter if it's a straight laced father with three children that are so well behaved, or the single mom that's just struggling with a troubled teen, the church elder, or the homosexual, the Christian, or the Muslim. Sincere love always brings dignity to others. Next, a sincere love is a love that is robust in Holy Spirit-led service. It's never lacking in zeal. So you might say, how does zeal, how does this concept of zeal relate to a love that is free from hypocrisy? I think the vitality that's spoken of here is one that that moves in the opposite direction of apathy, of laziness, of complacency. There should be an appropriate enthusiasm in our Christian walk. That shouldn't be a bad word. (laughs) It's appropriate. And, And not just as a fleeting excitement, but as a sustained eagerness in the service for the Lord. Sometimes, you know, our, our, our churches can be so on guard, so alert for heresy, but not for apathy. And cannot apathy be just as dangerous? Jesus told the church of Laodicea in, in Revelation 3, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so be because you are lukewarm neither hot nor cold i'm about to spit you out of my mouth it's quite an image this lukewarm apathy genuine love is zealous and holy spirit led service to one another not that it never gets tired god knows we are but dust but but it doesn't tolerate lethargic uh, lethargic indifference, lethargic indifference, I'm sorry. It's, it's robust, it's vigorous, it's hearty, full-bodied, determined, full of life. As a church family, we've had some struggles in these recent weeks, some bumps in the road. And I don't particularly enjoy difficult seasons, personally or corporately, <laughs> But there's one thing that I'm praising God for right now amongst this people. A renewal of spiritual zeal. A wake-up call in which more and more people are saying, why are we here? Why are we doing this? What are we really supposed to be about? And most importantly, more and more people falling on their knees, praying with one another and for one another for this body and for what God wants to do in and through it. Amen? That's a good thing. When God stirs, sometimes it can be terribly painful. But he reminds us not to lose or lack in spiritual zeal. Another trait of authentic love is that it is long-suffering. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. It produces a steadfastness that is sustained by hopefulness and not dissuaded by difficulty. Hopefulness allows us to experience joy even when times are hard it gives us a calm stamina in the face of trials so it keeps us pressing on we can be hopeful that a good god will continue to do good things that a good god is as it says in romans 8:28 working all things For the good of those who love him and have been called to according to his purpose. And it keeps us regularly turning to our greatest resource, as I said before, to prayer. It gets us on our knees. John Phillips says, praise, patience, prayer. The Christian has an anchor for the future. He has hope. Not just a vague and sentimental optimism, but hope as bright as the promises of God. The Christian does not rebel in tribulation, nor rashly accuse God. He is patient, knowing that God is too wise to make any mistakes, too loving to be unkind, and too powerful to be thwarted in his ultimate aims. And then lastly for this morning... We'll pick up again next week. Love that is sincere is charitable. Both in giving and in taking in. Where charity gives freely to those who are in need, hospitality is willing, a willingness to open our homes to those who are in need. The Greek word actually uh, denotes a love for strangers. Strangers i say, that sounds terribly dangerous. Well, maybe it is. <laughs> maybe it is. You know what? Here you go. Love is dangerous. Genuine love, real love, it's dangerous. You're going to get hurt along the way. You're going to take some risks along the way. Love is so dangerous that Je- it led Jesus to the cross. That's how dangerous love is. Yeah, it's dangerous. But that's what real love looks like. The word practice, hospitality, it it, it means this idea of an active pursuit, not just a sluggish waiting, of pursuing people, an eager eye out for those that we can give to, an eager eye out for those we could take in. Authentic love doesn't hoard. It doesn't hold too tightly to its possessions. It doesn't overlook the needs of others. It doesn't allow us to view our homes just as our our private castles. Instead, it holds loosely and gives freely. Sometimes this is in momentous ways, but often it's in small ways. Small, consistent sacrifice. Sacrifice of time. Making lunch for the guys who are working on the house. Bringing flowers to the friend that is in the hospital. Allowing your neighbor to use your precious mower because his just broke down. Allowing someone to stay in your home when they're traveling through. There was just a beautiful example of this this week in my own daughter's life, in Julie's life. And again, it's a small thing, but it's a big thing. Julie is coming home in the summer for five weeks from Indonesia, and she needs a car. So she says this week when we were on a video call with her, she goes, "I, I, I got a car for the five weeks. Really? How did that happen? Well, my friends, and it's this young couple downstate in the church that she went to, probably in their late 20s with a baby. They say, well, you know what? We have two cars. We'll do without one while you're home. I said, that's beautiful, real-life, sacrificial charity. So love must be sincere, loyal to good, faithful to my spiritual family, always bringing others dignity. Robust and spirit-led service, long-suffering, and charitable. And we'll continue with this theme next week. But for now, I'll add these three pages. If you can imagine, that was only three pages. <laughs> I'll add these three pages to my pile. But again, all these words mean nothing if we don't put it into practice. Love must be sincere, not play acting, not hypocritical, but real, genuine. Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, we once again thank you for your word, for its beautiful instruction the fact 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 the the fact, 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 the